I remember as a uh, as a young adult, I saw more of these than I did uh, as a kid. But preachers on TV um, be like talking about being a Christian as they define it. Have you ever watched a TV preacher and it seemed like a used car salesman? Like I would see some of these guys. And they would make following Jesus sound like being on an elementary school playground. Like they would say stuff like, believe in yourself and just be kind. And there's nothing you can't do if you're confident in yourself. And if you believe, things will always go your way. As if we can always be the star of the playground and everyone would like us. And our team would always win kickball. And we'd always cross the monkey bars. Like I was that kid who couldn't get across the monkey bars. And uh, if I just love God, I would be able to get across the monkey bars of life. And... Our friends would never get off the teeter-totter of life and faith while we were at the top. And we could always, uh, then when we were done, pick wildflowers and drink lemonade together. And just following Jesus was one big day at the playground. And then that just didn't seem for me to, life doesn't work that way and faith doesn't work that way. Like following Jesus, unlike what some television preachers will tell you, following Jesus doesn't sort of give us immunity from trouble. (laughs) And uh, doesn't make life immediately like a playground. Um, So, I mean, even just thinking about this week, like how many of you had a sort of faith is a playground and lemonade and picking dandelions and everything is awesome kind of week? Like, and how many of you, by contrast, felt like at times you were on a battlefield and it was war and the stakes were high and sometimes you won and sometimes you took a step back, but it felt like combat? That latter tends to be my experience more than the playground of a lemonade and the monkey bars. You know what a really good week living for Jesus? is Kanye West. Uh, he had an amazing week living for Jesus, actually. Uh, like, he, more people thought about, talked about, heard about Jesus this week because of Kanye West, I promise you, than if you took the 100 most influential preachers in America and added up their influence this week, they didn't equal Kanye West's uh, influence uh, for the gospel this week. And that's pretty incredible, really. The, his, little, his album, which is 27 minutes long, I just called it his little album. His little album, Jesus is King, came out, I guess, did it come out Friday? Friday, and there was a movie that, was, that went with it, like a live thing with it that they were playing over at Assembly uh, Row at the movie theater there, and people are listening to it and talking about it. And the album, which is really amazing, by the way, I am not a hip-hop fan. Natalie thinks it's a joke, but I've been listening to it because I don't love hip-hop, and she does, so I'm stealing her genre of music. Like, he talks about, he gets it in an incredible way. Like, he gets that faith and life are not a playground. Um, He's got this one song, God Is, that is so powerful. It's probably my favorite one on the album. And in it, like, on another one, he's talking about how he'll be criticized on both sides. Like, in one song, he talks about how the Christians are going to criticize him and call him a hypocrite on this side. And on the other side, he says the media is going to criticize him. And at the end, he ends up saying over and over in the album, like, I don't care. This is for me, this is for my family, this is my faith, this is my life, this is my house, this is what I'm going to do, and this is what I'm going to be. And he seems to totally get that life is no playground, but he has made this commitment to follow Jesus, uh, understanding very clearly. Which leads to the first slide, if you'll pull up the first one. And this is the main idea today. If you want to write this down, I'm going to take a nap. It won't offend me. The Christian life is a battlefield, or a battleground, not a playground. We're wrapping up this series today, How to Bully a Bully, and life is full of bullies. There's the external bullies, 
And the way to respond to a bully without is through love and non-retaliation. There's the internal bullies of temptation and the way that we uh, deal with the bully of temptation internally is to flee, the Bible says. And then last week we talked about Satan, the unseen bully, and how we're called to stand against him. And man, he is a vicious guerrilla warfare uh, warrior who doesn't fight by normal rules of engagement. Now he's not, like Satan is not a playground bully. I talked the first week about the Martusis, Mike and Chris Martusi. They were such bullies, like, because there were two of them and one of you always, like, and they always wanted to scrap. They always wanted to fight. Every football game, every playground game, everything always ended with them wanting uh, to fight. Satan is not like Mike and Chris Martusi. He is a guerrilla warrior who steps out of the jungle to shoot you when you are least expecting it. And we as Christians have got to be prepared to fight him and to stand against him. So God doesn't call us necessarily to be on the attack against him because Jesus has already won. At the cross, Jesus attacked Satan and defeated him. But we are called to stand against him. And we do that by putting on what Paul calls the armor of God. Because the stakes are so high, we need to put on the armor of God every day and possibly every hour. So um, before we read Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, let me just really quickly say, when we talk about Christians fighting the enemy and we talk about the armor of God, we are not talking about war against other countries. We all know the story. What's up, man? We all know the story of the Crusades. We all know the stories of where Christians got it totally wrong in human history. And I don't want to minimize those stories or those moments. Those things were wrong when Christians went to fight people. To be sure, the Crusades and other times Christians used war as a way to bully and conquer. Those were sinful decisions. We're called to bully a bully externally through love and non-retaliation. So the church got that wrong. So when we talk about putting on the armor of God or the church fighting an enemy, we're not talking about how to fight a human enemy or another religion or another culture. We're talking about how to fight the devil and his kingdom. So Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. Here we go. Now Paul is wrapping up arguably the the most concise, uh, accurate theology, theological discourse on the Christian faith. And he says, finally, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We read all that last week. Therefore, in light of that, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. That's a key phrase, and the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication or praying for all the saints, and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Ephesians is written in 62 AD, roughly, 
at that point, Paul is in Rome and he's in jail. And so there's a good chance while he's imprisoned, possibly literally chained up, when he says, I am an ambassador in chains, there's a chance he's standing there looking at a Roman soldier dressed in the, the armor that a Roman soldier would wear. And he says, you know what? Following God is going to be war. So you need to put on the armor of God. And he's like li- literally looking at this person's equipment saying, oh yeah, helmet. Oh yeah, feet. Oh yeah, belt. And he's going off and just saying these different things. And so he's looking at these soldiers. He's describing what's going on. Now, I think we have a slide for this. Yeah, good. In verse 13, it says, you need to be prepared in the evil day or when the day of evil comes that you may be able to take up the whole armor of God to withstand in the evil day. Every day, uh, even every hour, every moment, we need to be ready to be dressed in the armor of God to stand because we don't know when Satan will be ready to attack. That's the crazy thing. When Paul says the evil day, he's saying there's coming a day in your life where you may have temptations, you may have external bullies, but there's coming a day in your life and in my life where Satan is going to bring everything against you and try to wreck you. There are days in our life, I'm looking at Natalie and I can think about the days when it felt like Satan brought everything, the evil day and just laser beamed it in on us to try to attack us. And so because of that, we need to understand that not every day is created equal. The evil day is a specific day, season, or place. All days are evil in potential. Every day is evil in potential, sort of in the abstract. But there's coming a day when Satan wants to truly attack you. This happened in the life of Job. That's what the book of Job is about. Satan coming before God and saying, I'm ready to attack Job. This happened in the life of Paul. This happened in the life of Jesus a couple of times where Satan brought everything at him full force in the evil day to try to attack him. Satan's timing determines when the evil day comes, but your preparation determines whether or not you will be ready. This is not one of those things that you can um, prepare for on the fly. Who will be the toughest basketball opponent you guys will play this year? Tech Boston. You guys won't, five minutes for Tech Boston before that game, say, all right, let's get it together. Now we've got to run good offense. Now we've got to get our passes crisp. Now we've got to run these defensive schemes. That will be happening from now all the way until the day of that game. And it's the same way in our relationship with God. When Satan is ready to attack, we can't five minutes before be like, all right, now it's time to put our big boy britches on and be ready to go. There's got to be that preparation over and over and over. He controls when the day comes. You control when and uh, when and how prepared you will be. I've seen uh, the evil day come for men and for women who were on a business trip and the evil day came against their marriage. I've seen the evil day uh, come against people with the health of a loved one. I've seen the evil day come against people when a bill came in and they didn't have the money to pay the bill. This is, and how we've walked with God and prepared will determine how we're going to do in that moment. I think we've got the next one, if you will, for me, Carson. Be certain of when it could come. Let me tell you four ways to know roughly when the evil day may come in your life, when Satan most wants to attack. And I can text these to you later if you want. When you start growing deeper in your relationship with God and quit playing games. You can be prepared that Satan will come at you. 
when you decide, oh, I'm all in, I'm done playing church, I'm really ready to do this. Like with Kanye West this week, you can be guaranteed that the enemy is going to come at him now in a way that he never has before. Number two, when you or our church are in a season of invading enemy territory, we can know that the enemy will come at us. The evil day will be more likely to come when we or you decide, okay, now we're about to push back at the enemy in a big way. Number three, when you are repenting of sin and being changed and coming to know Jesus more, the enemy will come at you. Like Adam and Eve, I like to put fig leaves over my sin so nobody knows about them. When we decide, you know what, I'm going to be honest that I'm human and I'm struggling in this area and I'm repenting of this and trying to become more like Jesus, know that the evil day will be more uh, likely to come at you. And then fourth, when God is preparing to do something in you or through you that's going to bring him great glory. There's going to be times in your life where God does something and people are going to say, Renee, man, I've watched what God has done in your life, and it makes me want to know Jesus more. Michaela, I've seen what God is doing in your life, and it makes me want to know Jesus more. Know that when those moments come, the enemy is more likely to attack you, and the evil day is more likely to come. And so what do we do in those moments? Paul says it, I think, four or five times, stand stand. When the evil day comes, you need to be ready to stand. We don't flee Satan, demons, hell, and fear. We don't have to attack Satan, demons, and hell because Jesus has already run the war, won the war. Rather, we stand against his attacks and the things he is for, and we fight. And we prepare by putting on the armor of God. I read a quote this week. It's really powerful. There are no Christian mercenaries to fight on our behalf. There's no hired Christian guns to fight on our behalf. Each of us has to take up the armor of God. When Wayne and Amy moved to Florida on Tuesday or Wednesday, there won't be someone who just steps into their life to fight their spiritual battles for them. Through their preparation and following Jesus, they will make the decision because nobody's going to fight that battle for them and nobody will fight the battle for you. We have to take up the armor of God and be prepared to fight that battle uh, against the enemy. So here are the six pieces of the armor of God. The belt of truth. One, Paul said, uh, with the first one he, he gives here, he says, and put on the belt of truth, having fastened the belt of truth. Now, in, in a Roman soldier, this was much like our belt that we wear, they, but they would tuck their robes into it to keep them from tripping. And then they would also um, put their weapons on it, kind of like a holster, right? The sword would be on the belt. And so it kept them from tripping. It allowed them to run faster and to get access to weapons. And, and when God calls us, when Paul writes, put on the belt of truth, truth here is sincerity and truthfulness, it's openness and honesty before God and others. If you put on a belt of truth, you'll never get caught with your pants down, metaphorically, spiritually. I was watching a highlight of the LSU football game the other day, and the quarterback, Joe Burrow, so funny, I saw it on a replay of a not top 10 on SportsCenter. The defensive uh, lineman for the other team playing goes to tackle Burrow by the pants, and his pants coming down, and so it's on replay. So they, they put a little graphic of a football over his butt crack so you couldn't see it, I and mean, you could immediately hear the announcer say, one of them goes, what could they have done to prevent that? And he said, he should have had his belt tighter. He should have had his belt tighter. He was humiliated on national television because he didn't have his belt tied tight enough. And, uh, and man, the same principle is true for us. 
the, the, belt of tr- the belt held other weapons and kept the outer garments in place. To put on the belt of truth can be understood as accepting the truth of the Bible and choosing to follow it with integrity. It is, uh, it's either truth, the Bible is either true or it's not. Following Jesus is either true or it's not. We can't, we don't have this luxury. I was reading last night about the Nazis. When the Nazis... They, they, they basically took Christianity and turned it into this evil cartoon to serve their purposes. So they said, oh, we follow the Bible. The problem was they took out everything in the Bible that was Jewish. So they took out all of the Old Testament. They took out every reference to Jesus, who was in fact Jewish, that referred to his Jewishness. They took it out and they ended up with this thing that they used as propaganda to destroy the Jews and demonize them. It's awful. It wasn't Christianity. It was evil and demonic what Hitler did. And the proof of that is the fact that he threw out most of the Bible. The Bible, we don't have the luxury to say, oh, I love what the Bible says about loving your neighbor and turning the other cheek. I hate that part when it calls me to die to myself, take up my cross and follow him. We don't have that luxury. We put on the belt of truth and we believe and, and live under the authority of the Bible rather than seeing ourselves as an authority over the Bible because we trust that God will make sense of everything even that we don't understand when we reorient our lives around him. We live in a true for me but not for you culture. True for me but not for you. Like uh, true for you not for me and, uh, and that, that's subjective truth. It's where I the subject determines what's true. Alicia might say well, you know, I, I think it's, uh, I might say it's wrong to park in a handicapped spot. And Alicia might say, yeah, but it's raining and I need my Starbucks, so I'm going to park in a handicapped spot. And, that's, and I would say, well, that's not true. That's not good. And she was like, well, that's true for me. That's the culture we live in. That's subjective where everyone is determining the subject, their truth. The truth is the Bible says that truth is objective and God is truth, that Jesus is truth. And so we can't define it. And so some cultures will say, love thy neighbor. There are some cultures that say, eat thy neighbor. Like, that's a problem. That's a problem. Like, truth has to be objective, and there has to be some universal truth, and God defines it as the author of truth. So we need to seek what he says is truth, and then buckle our pants up around what God says is true. The next piece of equipment that Paul lists is the breastplate of righteousness. This was a you know, I think about the Narnia books and the Narnia movies. This is the, the chest piece. I can just see the lion right there on the chest piece, right? And so this would go neck all the way down to thighs. The breastplate of righteousness is our integrity. It's a, it becomes a lifestyle of integrity. Integrity is who we are when no one is looking. And so this has to do not with who we say we are, but who we actually are. Uh, being right in words and in character, conforming to God's will. God has declared us righteous in Jesus. Some of you, I love you. I want to point at you so bad right now, a few of you. Like, you feel like God views you as more righteous based on how you perform during the week. And so you beat yourself up much more than God ever would. In Jesus, God has declared you righteous. When he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. You are covered in a breastplate of righteousness, God covering you. And so Satan will come at you and try to attack you and say, you're such a sinner. You didn't do well this week. You don't really love God. You're not a Christian. You're a fraud. You're a fake. 
And when you put on the breastplate of righteousness, when he attacks, you say, I am not a sinner. I am, in fact, a saint. I don't feel like a saint right now, but I am a saint. I am not a fraud. God sees me exactly as I am, and he loved me, and he sent his son to die for me. I am a Christian. I've received Jesus, and I'm becoming who God wants me to be. And then, with all the courage you can muster, you say, that is a lie, Satan. And I am covered in the breastplate of righteousness. Truth keeps me from getting caught with my pants down. Righteousness becomes my lifestyle as I live out truth. The third piece, shoes of readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, these would be calf-high sandals. You know, this is, the, this is the most masculine and feminine shoe of all time. It is a sandal wrapped around the calf, almost just from south of the knees all the way down. But it was a proto-cleat because it had these nails in it. And this is the masculine part, right? So you had this, this calf-high sandal wrapped around. And then you would get down to the leather sole and they had, they had cleats that they put into it. So when they're fighting, they can hold their ground. So it didn't matter if they were in the mountains or a wet field or a snowy uh, valley. They were holding their ground. And Paul says, put on the sandals of the gospel of peace. You have peace because you're anchored into the gospel and you don't slip and you don't fall down. We are anchored by the gospel of peace and it results in peace as we stand firm. The gospel allows us to stand firm in who we are. Now the gospel... The the word gospel has a different meaning for many in New England, and I didn't know this, than how I grew up with. My Catholic friends will say gospel is the word for sermon. Man, that was a great gospel you delivered. The pastor gave the gospel. Here is how the Bible would define the gospel. Gospel just means good news. Just means good news. And the good news is this, that we're all sinners, and when we were sinners, Jesus died for us. And we can have relationship with God by turning from our sin and trusting Christ. That's the gospel that God has called us to. So when we root our life in the gospel, regardless of our footing, we don't slip and we don't fall. And that will bring us tremendous peace. We can rest in the gospel and we can share the gospel. Can I tell you the times when you will feel like the strongest Christian will be the times where you're bold and you invite someone to follow Jesus or you take a stand in following Jesus, or you invite someone to church. You will feel the strongest because you are the deepest rooted in the gospel in that moment. There have been times in my life, and probably in yours, where you've shared your faith, and you may have been so hungry, but man, you you shared what God had done in your life, and it was like all that hunger went away. Or you've had other needs and all of those things sort of went away. And the reason for that is because you were rooted in the gospel. And it brings us a security and a satisfaction and identity that we can't get anywhere else. The gospel gives us sure footing to keep from slipping. The next thing he says is the shield of faith. Now in the ancient Greek uh, language, which the New Testament was written in, in the ancient Roman world, there were two shields. And if you Google Roman soldier, you're going to get pictures of the two shields. One shield is the little circle shield. You've seen that one, right? They would strap it on their arm, and it was just a little circle. It was like this big, and it would kind of do this number. That is not the shield that Paul is talking about. The shield Paul is talking about is two and a half feet wide, 
by four feet tall, and it had latches on both sides, and it was multi-layered. There'd be a layer of leather with a gap, a layer of metal with a gap, a layer of this with a gap, and then tar between the levels to keep them attached, right? So this mat- now, mind you, the average Roman soldier was 5'1". Natalie's 5'2". She's very proud of that, uh, that second one. For a lot of her life, she thought she was 5'1". She measured one day, she said, I am 5'2". She will let you know she is 5'2", not 5'1". She was taller than the average Roman soldier. So you've got this Italian guy carrying this massive sword with these hooks on the side. And they would go into battle, and the enemy would take their arrows, and they would put pitch on the end of them, light them on fire, and shoot them. And the Roman soldiers would take their, uh, they would take their shields and they would hook them to the guy beside him and the guy beside him. And they would form a line. And then because they were 5'1 and the shield was four feet tall, they could hide right down behind it. And they could advance. And Roman history says that there was one soldier who had 200 flaming arrows in his shield and he was not hurt at all. Just kept on advancing. And Paul says, take up the shield of faith so that you can stand against the, the fiery darts, he says, of the enemy. So you can stand against the fiery darts of the enemy, the shield of faith. Faith is confidence in who God is, what he has said and what he's done. God is less concerned about the size of your faith than the object of your faith. I have small faith. Do you ever feel like you have small faith? Sometimes I pray, and I'm like, God, are you going to do this? Are you capable of doing this, right? I struggle with that sometimes. God's not concerned with how big our faith is. He's concerned about who our faith is in. And if our faith is in Jesus, God will take care of us. And so take up the shield of faith, placing our faith fully in God. And they will stop Satan's fiery arrows of doubt and dismissing And something that, and the incredible thing is they will connect in with somebody else's faith. Like this journey, this fight, this war is not meant to be lived alone. In 10 years, 11 years of being a pastor, I think Nat and I have learned this. When someone gets separated from our church and stops coming, they're in trouble. If someone's not here for a month, we begin to pray earnestly and, 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 and hope and pray that they're okay. Because our shields are meant to latch in with one another's shields. We are not meant, there are no Lone Ranger Christians. I just think about that Oregon Trail game as a kid. Do you remember that? Yeah. There are a bunch of computers out there the other day uh, that they, they finally carried off. They were in that closet. And we were wondering how many of those computers would have had that Oregon Trail game on it when we were kids. Then you remember playing Oregon Trail and you'd be starving and a little jackrabbit would come across the, the prairie, and you'd be so excited, put it down. It didn't matter if it was a fast rabbit or a slow-moving buffalo. If one animal came across that screen, you were going to put it down. We are not made to be Lone Ranger believers. We're made to travel in a herd as followers of Christ. When the Bible speaks about you in the New Testament, it's always talking about you all, yous, you guys, yins, as they say in Western Pennsylvania. Like, these are all plural verbs. 
And so faith protects me and it protects other Christians from Satan's attacking questions, accusations, and lies. We need each other. I know a couple of you said this this morning that uh, somebody in the church reached out and said, can we get coffee this week? Man, if, if you ever get invited to do that, it may not be the best moment. And you might need to say, can we do that next week? Can we get together? But if that happens, always try to figure out a way to make that happen. We need one another. We need to latch those shields of faith in with one another because Satan's fiery darts are coming and we may be able to withstand them by ourselves, but we cannot advance. We can't advance without being latched in to one another. Otherwise, we would get picked off. And so the next one, the helmet of salvation, he says, this is bronze and leather. This isn't rocket science. I'm not sure if it had that big feather or not. I, I don't know what the big feather would have accomplished for you in the army. But um, when, when Paul says about putting on your helmet of salvation, he's not talking about, hey, I became a Christian when I was eight. What he's talking about is the ability to think well as a Christian, to think about the world in light of the gospel. It's called a biblical worldview. We have all these high schoolers in our church all of a sudden. And my biggest prayer for them is that if they choose to follow Jesus, that they would develop a biblical worldview. So we read the news through our convictions about the gospel. I was, somebody the other day was like, well, what do you think about what's happening in politics? I said, I hardly care. I hardly care. The last... It seems like 10, 15 years, maybe since 9-11, everybody thought the sky was falling and the world was going to end. And it, the sun keeps coming up. The country keeps running. You know why? Because Jesus is in control. And so when I read the news, I try to read it through a biblical worldview. If you're dating, if you're a high schooler, the way you date ought to influence, be influenced by what you believe about the gospel. What we tend to do is let our lifestyle influence what we believe about the gospel, not the gospel influence our lifestyle. We tend to be like this, up and down and up and down. And that is usually because our lifestyle is influencing what we believe. To have a biblical worldview, to put on the helmet of salvation is to let what we believe begin to influence how we live. And so Satan wants to distort our thinking. He'll say stuff like, you're not saved. You didn't mean it when you prayed to become a Christian. Noah asked us this week. He said, how do I know I meant it when I became a Christian? And we say to him, you meant it. But part of us parenting him well as an older Christian to a younger Christian is to help him develop a biblical worldview and put on the helmet of salvation so when Satan attacks his mind, um, he can dismiss that. Satan will say, she or he doesn't love you. They will leave you. God won't come through in your moment of need. You're a fool for believing this. But if we're wearing the helmet of salvation, we know and tell ourselves that, and we can tell Satan that, in fact, we are saved. We did mean it. We're totally forgiven. Others can be saved. We are loved. God will come through, and the best days are ahead. The, the helmet of salvation prevents us from having stinking thinking. We had something in our uh, kitchen, in our trash can, that got real gross this week. You ever have that happen? Like, you're just walking, just walking through, and then all of a sudden, like, the smell of death emanates from your trash can. I just think God is not in my fridge, like, you know, or, or like a dead animal. It was just some old trash. 
That's what happens to our thinking if we're not constantly putting on the helmet of salvation. We develop stinking thinking, and the enemy can walk by and just pound us. We've got to develop a biblical worldview. If I were a basketball player, I would read anything by John Wooden. John Wooden, to me, is the greatest coach of all time, and that man knew more about how uh, basketball and life. Reading about John Wooden will help to, to put on the helmet of salvation in a powerful way. He was a very outspoken follower of Jesus. Leaders are learners, people say. Followers are learners, too. If you have stinking thinking and don't have a biblical worldview, if you don't know how to think properly about God and the gospel, come to me or find a Christian that you trust and say, help me develop that. You've got to have that. We've got to put on the helmet of salvation. Uh, And then the last one, he says, the the sword of the spirit. Uh, This is kind of a two-part one. The sword of the spirit. The word is the first part of it. Now, the sword was two feet long. It wasn't real heavy. You had to be able to yank it quickly and use it nimbly. And I think of Star Wars, and I think of the lightsabers. I always wanted what the bad lightsaber was the red lightsaber, right, in Star Wars. And then the good lightsaber was blue. Was it blue? I can't remember if it was blue or green. So when they were fighting with those lightsabers, right, sometimes they're using them defensively. And then sometimes they're using them offensively. The Bible is our defensive weapon where we defend ourselves against the enemy with the word. And it was also, it's also our offensive weapon. When Satan came to Jesus and tried to tempt him with power and food and comfort and authority, what did Jesus say back? He said, Satan, it is written. And he quoted scripture at the devil. He quoted scripture at the devil. And so... There's two words in Greek. I'm giving you nerdy Greek stuff today. There's two words in Greek for word. One's the word logos. This is the logos. It's just written words. You see a bunch of logos on this page, okay? The second word, though, is uh, used less frequently. It's a word called rhema. Rhema is what happens when, have you ever been reading the Bible and like the light bulb goes off, comes on over your head? You're like, boy, that makes sense. I can live that out. And then it stays with you all day. That's when the logos, just written words, become rhema. They become a sword that you can use in battle. And so Paul says, take up the rhema, the sword, the rhema. In other words, we need to know the Bible, not just read the Bible. We don't need to just get into the word. We're reading the Bible every day because that's what Christians do. We need the word to get into us. We need to read the logos so that it can become the rhema, the living word that becomes the sword so we can fight. So if we don't understand something, we need to learn to understand it. And if we're reading the Bible and 90% makes no sense, but 10% makes perfect sense, that's the rhema. And we hang on to that. We don't feel guilty about the 90% that didn't come alive, we feel thrilled that God brought 10% alive and we hang on to that and we use that as a sword in battle. We get into the word of God, the Bible, so that the word of God will get into us and we can use it to fight against the enemy. As a Christian, not knowing the word of God at all is like going into battle without a sword. We've got to be in the word. 
That's not a guilt trip, but a warning. If we're not in the Bible, absorbing the Bible, applying the Bible as a sword, you are in battle without a weapon, but you're oblivious or deceived. We've got to have the Bible. And then uh, the second part of the weapon, because in Greek, there's no punctuation. When this is originally written, there's no commas, there's no periods, no semicolons, no exclamation points, none of that. There's none of that. And so uh, in our Bible, in English, you get a period here, and it separates, and it says, and pray at all times. In the Greek, it says, take up the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and prayer. It's one thing. Prayer is your weapon. The Word of God is your weapon. They're both weapons. And so Paul says we take the word and prayer as a dual weapon. That makes sense. The word lived out is a weapon against Satan. Prayer is a weapon against Satan. Our prayers need to be consistent, intense, and strategic. And I've written an acronym. If you stink at praying, how many of you stink at praying? Your minds wander? Yep, a few of you. Awesome. A couple of you are laughing. You incriminated yourself as well. Here's a nice acronym for prayer, okay? When you sit down to pray, praise God. God, I just thank you, first of all, that you love me because, man, I am unlovable some days. I thank you that the world is still spinning and the sun came up today and you were in control. I thank you. We just spend a moment praising God. I don't like it when my kids come up to me, hey, Dad, 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 I want an iPod. And I want to download this game. And I would like M&M's for breakfast. Like, what I do know, and this is what makes kids so manipulative and slightly evil, but adorable. I love it when they come in and they get Natalie on this every time. She's such a sucker, right? They come in and they snuggle. Mom, I love you. You're the best. And sometimes they actually do that with nothing, wanting nothing, right? It's the best. They just come in. Mom, I love you. Sometimes they'll be like, Mom, you know what? You cook really well. Um, Oh, and it's hot dogs. Mom, you make the best hot dogs. Really tough to mess a hot dog up. Um, right? We start our prayer with praise, coming before God, just telling him why we love him, why he's awesome, what he's done. It's so incredible. And then the next thing is to repent. If I've got something against Natalie, there's something struggling in our marriage, I'm not just going to go in and start asking her to do stuff. She's going to be like, uh, do you remember when you did da-da-da-da-da? So the second thing we do when we come to God is we say, God... And we don't have to make up sins. I don't have to make something up. But if there's something in my life that I say, well, I'm not right with God here. I come in and say, God, before I start asking you for anything, I just want to let you know I haven't been walking with you. And will you, will you forgive me? The third thing we ask. At that point, we say, God, now will you really, please, Lord, help Wayne and Amy find a really good church? God, I know Carla's knee has been really bugging her. Will you please help her need to get better? And will you help use this just to slow her soul down so she knows you really, really well? God, will you help Lana as she recovers from the procedure she had the other day? God, will you help Alicia at her uh, housing complex as they've got this Christmas thing coming up? And this is a real opportunity for uh, maybe for our church to serve them. And, but it's a really great opportunity just for her to love and serve her neighbors. Will you give her courage? And we come to God and we ask at that point. And then finally we yield. So that at the end of that, if God says, hey, now Barb, I need you to. After having done that, we say, yep, God, whatever you want today. This is your day. I'm your servant, your 
life, it's your time, it's your money. You have all of me. I'm not holding anything back. I yield to you, God. I defer to you. We can pray often, boldly, honestly, and humbly and use prayer as a weapon, as a sword to fight against Satan. The Christian life is not a vow to never lose a battle, but is a commitment always to fight. We need to expect a fight. We need to recognize a fight. And we need to fight the fight. We need to, this morning we were coming, we were turning off of Polk Street onto Bunker. A motorcycle came flying up Bunker. It, it had to have been going a thousand miles an hour. I think it was going 50 miles an hour. I, Natalie's like, go, go, go. I floored it and got past him. He didn't hit me. But he looks at me as if I've committed the crime, right? Have you ever gotten that look, that look in this neighborhood, right? Where I was dumb, I, didn't, I looked quickly and didn't see a car. So I wasn't expecting a motorcycle going 50 miles an hour up Bunker Hill Street. I almost got blindsided. Spiritually, we need to expect Satan to attack. We need to recognize his attack when it comes. And we need to use the armor of God to fight it when he uh, attacks. At, at the end of the Two Towers movie, the Lord of the Rings movie, Theoden says to Aragorn, he says, I will not risk open war. He doesn't want to fight. And Aragorn says, open war is upon you, whether you would risk it or not. Whether we want to fight or not is not up to us. We are in the middle of a battle. The armor of God is not a prayer we recite, but a life we live. Truth, righteousness, gospel readiness and rootedness, salvation, knowledge, faith, Wielding the word of God in prayer in the middle of open war. The Christian life's a battleground, not a playground. Which pieces of God's armor do you most need to put on, Christian? And non-Christian, understand that your greatest danger is that you may not be a threat to the enemy at all. Because you're on his side. So you don't need to dress for battle to fight him. You need to repent of sin and turn and become part of his family. Let me pray for us.